All right, another question from the MBT Forum from Tyler Campbell. I've been confused as to what you meant by the point consciousness state for some time now. I've had two experiences which I can both relate to your description of point consciousness, yet they were radically different. In the first experience, I was listening to binaural beats before bed while keeping a clear mind. After a while, I lost consciousness for what seemed like a second, caught myself, and had the startling sensation of being ripped out of my body like I was being shot out of a cannon or something. I would describe it as a violent experience. Then I was a single point of awareness floating in a black 3D void with small lights making patterns. I had no awareness of my body and found this extremely terrifying and immediately tried to get back. The whole experience caught me completely off guard, which is why I think I reacted with so much fear. If this is the point consciousness state, then I'm surprised you talk about it nonchalantly because it was one of the most intense experiences of my life and I haven't been able to repeat it to this day. The second experience that I had, maybe point consciousness, um, is the one I occasionally experience during meditation. Sometimes during meditation, my awareness moves to my forehead and becomes slightly expansive with a little depth or 3D-ness to a black foreground before my closed eyes. My face usually goes numb and it's very relaxing. I'm not sure if this is exactly the point consciousness state you recommend being able to maintain for an hour or so um, before exercising intent in the LCS or my first experience. He's asking which of those do you consider to be. Well, Well, let me first just define point consciousness. Point consciousness occurs when you stop processing sense data. Okay, you have this avatar, and you are the player of the avatar. Everything the avatar senses is the data that you receive from the server. When you let go of that, stop processing that data. Take your awareness away from it. Many times when you take your awareness away from it, it just ceases to exist. You're not aware anymore of you know, the physical reality. That is point consciousness. And again, as I said earlier, if the phone rings, you may still hear it. Or if you hear the traffic outside, you may still hear it, but you're just not processing it. It's not something, it's not data you're taking in and working with. It's data you're ignoring completely. That is point consciousness. That's all it is. It isn't anything more than that. If you have no data, Okay, the data the server sends to you that you interpret as the physical world, if you turn that data stream off, you're not getting any of that data anymore, then that's point consciousness. You're just a point of consciousness floating in a void. You see nothing, you hear nothing, you smell nothing, you taste nothing, you feel nothing. That's a void. That defines a void. There's no sensory input. Okay. The only thing you're aware of is that you exist, that you are consciousness and you exist, and that's it. That's point consciousness. You're almost there when you just read a good book. If you're reading a really good book, you forget about all the stuff going on around you. You're engrossed in the book, except one difference is now you're in the book. 
you're living the book story, you see. So you're getting that data stream from the book. Well, if you could just stay in, if you could just close the book and stay in that same state, you'd be in point consciousness. Of course, most people won't be able to do that, but it's, it's a similar thing. It's just shutting off the sense data. Just like Ingo talked about with his, with his, uh, daydream. In his daydream, he shuts off all the physical things. He's not here anymore. Well, when you're not here anymore, that means you are, you know, in the old metaphor that really is a terrible metaphor. That means you are no longer aware of your body or no longer in your body, if you will. You never were in your body, but we'll just say no longer aware of your body. Okay, then you're elsewhere. Okay, you can call that, you know, out of body or you can call it a daydream, but you're getting data and information someplace else, not from the data stream that defines this multiplayer game that we call our physical universe. That is, you know, you first get the point consciousness where you let everything go and then you hook to some other data stream and you have experience. So that's really all point consciousness is. It's not that hard. You are in point consciousness in a daydream, a really good daydream where you're really caught up in the daydream. You know, you're really living it, the daydream, not just something you're making up in your intellect, but you're, you're living it. You're a part of it. You're in the story, not just watching the story, but you're in it. Okay. So these are things that, uh, aren't that hard to do. Now you had your first point conscious where you were kind of there, let go of the reality. That was point conscious. And then you were um, shot out of a cannon, so to speak, into the larger reality. And that's probably because you had a thought, a stray thought probably came by in your mind that had something to do with, with uh, out of body or, or uh, going someplace. And that just brought up this image and feeling of being blasted out of a cannon. Because with the image goes the feeling of actually being there, like you are blasted out of this cannon. Well, that was just a, that's something you can do. If you like being blasted out of cannons, you can do that every time you go to point consciousness if you want. But I'd say your mind probably just drifted over a question about, well, what next maybe? And the system thought that that would be a good answer because the system has a good sense of humor. You know, maybe we'll just blast you out of a cannon and see what you do with that. Or maybe it was your own intention that triggered that, more likely. But then the second one, I don't really understand too well, because you said you found yourself in a void, a 3D deep void with little lights going on, blinking or on and off, or just little lights that were with you. And for some reason, that was terrifying. Why is a black void with little lights blinking, or little lights twinkling, or even just existing, why is that terrifying? It was probably terrifying because you realized that you were no longer in Kansas. You know, you were no longer in the physical reality. Oh my God, look, I'm not in the, I'm not in the reality anymore. I'm somewhere else, you know, and that's probably what terrified you. Just the fact that, uh, you know, like Dorothy, you know, realized that she wasn't in Kansas any longer. She was in Oz and uh, that can be terrifying, but really there shouldn't be anything terrifying about dark with little specks of light in it. That's not really a terrifying situation. So I suspect that these are the things you bring to it. It's not that point consciousness 
is being blown out of cannons or being terrified by little lights in the darkness. Those are things that you bring to the experience of point consciousness. Not that point consciousness is that. Point consciousness isn't anything more than just letting go of sense data. That's it. Now, once you get there to where you can maintain that state, that state of just floating in the void, that's a good solid state from which you can do other things. At that point, you can communicate with others. You can, you know, you can remote view, you can heal, you can out of body, you can do all kinds of other things. Gather data from databases, but that's the place to start from where you let go of the sense data. So that's why I say you go to point consciousness first. And you need to be able to hold it. You know, you need to be able to stay in that state. Well, when you have a daydream like Ingo, then that helps you stay there because you're really involved in the dream. You're not thinking about sense data. You're not thinking about, oh, where'd my other reality go? You know, you're just so involved in the dream that you don't have to worry about dropping out of that state. You maintain the state just because you're focused in it. And that's really all it all it takes. You just have to be there long enough that you can get focused in another to another data stream and there you are. So I think you're doing fine. Sounds like all of your uh um experiences are are uh, not that unusual. You should have a, a little less fear. It was no doubt fear that got you to the cannon and fear that made you afraid of those little lights in the darkness or that experience of being in that that particular state. So you'll get that fear will dissolve as you do it more often. Just keep working at it. And eventually that fear should dissipate and go away because it'll become mundane. You've been in that darkness with the lights, you know, or without the lights, uh, you know, hundreds of times and it won't be scary anymore. It was just scary probably because it was different. Same with the cannon. The canon is just something that was an experience for you, whether it was out of your own fear or whether the system just did that to give you something to do other than just hang out. Hard to say. Probably was your fear, your sense of being in this reality and how do you get in another reality? How do you get there? And then the idea, well, you know, you can't just take a walk. You must be something dramatic like being blown out of a cannon. And then that's what you experience. I don't mean that you have all that thought going on in your intellect, but that's what's going on at your being level. Yes, you can think at the being level. Thank you, Tom. Frank, thanks for joining us today. I know you've got a couple of questions you'd like to ask Tom, so please go ahead. Yes. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, my first question is about a very practical application of mbt because it's all what we do with it right um and um so i've done some thinking and when it comes to political and economic systems tom i think you said many times that um well the whole mess the world is in that's because we still need to grow up and and basically once everyone's grown up and become love then it doesn't really matter anymore what economic or political system we have uh because mm -hmm. yeah so we've we've all discussed this uh, already. So so I was wondering, but until we get there, until everyone's grown up, what do we do in the meantime? And uh, then looking at the alternatives. Um, so we have uh, a number of democratic countries in the world, mostly in the West, but also elsewhere. And we've got dictatorships, autocracies. 
communist and socialist regimes. And so I was wondering, in order to, because you also said uh, at a personal level, in order to help people grow up, the only thing we can do is provide them with a safe environment in which they can grow up. So if we look at that at a country level or at the global level, what's a safe environment for people to grow up in? And then I've come to the conclusion that democracy for all its faults and the way it is implemented, uh, it's really not ideal, but it's still better than all the other alternatives because dictatorships, autocracies, all that is based really on fear. And I think at least in principle, democracy If, if people weren't so egotistical and all that, but in principle, democracy could be implemented almost without fear. And uh, so I wonder if we strive to become loved, to care for others and to provide everyone with a safe environment, isn't it then also our duty until somebody comes up with an even better idea to do all we can to contribute to, to help strengthen and maintain democracy where we have it? Because I think These days, democracy is under a lot of uh, stress and, and um, yeah, is in, in, in danger of, you know, sliding back into some less democratic forms. So this is the first part of my question. If, I don't know if you would like to step in already here, say a comment on that. Um, yeah, 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 I'll comment on that. Um, you're correct. I think your analysis is right. The thing that, that democracy has that... Some of the others have traditionally not had, well, let's just take democracy and, uh, versus the totalitarian is that democracy supposedly, right? In theory cares about the people. Mm -hmm. It's, it's about the people. It's not about the power of the government. It's about a government that serves the people and the way the people make their, their, uh, needs known is through a, a voting process because you have lots of people and if you want to, you know, serve the people, then you have to know the will of the people and that is done through through voting. So it's just a, a process that is more caring and more respectful of people. So then you can see democracies are just a little higher up on the evolutionary chain as far as caring. Okay, then you can take something, then let's say totalitarianism, which is all about power. You know, I'm in charge, you do what I say or else. And uh, that obviously is very self-centered. <laughs> that is very arrogant. Um, that is very abusive. So that's pretty, that's further down on the evolutionary scale. And you can take something, let's say like socialism, which in theory is also about the people. It's just, You know, it's about the people. And if the people that have this socialist uh, government really do care about the people, then that will work okay too, if it really is about the people. But we have found that at least some of the socialist uh, regimes in our past haven't done so well in that category. You know, they've tended to turn eventually into something more totalitarian. Well, some of the democracies do that too. You know, they eventually tend to turn into something a little more totalitarian. You know, in, uh, in my country, in the U.S., we've gone from a government that is or was for the people. The whole point of government was to, you know, take care of the people. 
right? That's why you have committees that, that, uh, check whether foods are safe or, you know, medicines are working and you're, you know, it's all about taking care of the people. And that has generally now morphed into taking care of the corporations. It's not really taking care of the people anymore. The people are the, you know, I don't know what you call them, uh, what the mark, the source, the patsy, uh, you know, the, the people you manipulate to get them to do what you want, not the people that you're taking care of. So it changes. So democracies can head that same route. And what happens is that those organizations uh, change as the people change. As a society gets more fearful, as ours has done, uh, we're, we're many times more fearful now as a society than we were a couple of generations ago. So as you get more fearful, then your quality of consciousness tends to sink. That's just the nature of consciousness, being more fearful and, you know, being uh, less caring, go together, being more self-centered and being more fearful, go together. So that happens, and it doesn't matter where you start out. You can end up any place. And now we go to something more extreme, like communist. Well, in theory, the communist uh, theory is all about the people, right? It's it's uh, serving the people. But we've found again in history that that often doesn't turn out that way, that pretty soon, uh, as in Animal Farm, you know, uh, some people become more equal than others. And pretty soon you get stratified, uh, you know, uh, and hierarchical positions, and it's not about the people at all. It's about power. It's just about uh, power and control. Mm. Well, that's that is just again, it's a reflection of the, you know, of that society that it turns into being that way because that's that is the that's where that society is at. So that's why I say it doesn't matter too much where you start. If you, if you're all grown up, you know, if everybody, uh, you know, is a being of love, then you can start at any kind of structure and you'll end up at the right place because it'll all change itself and morph into just the ideal government that really is all about the people. A government based on caring, you see. So yes, democracy is probably one of the, um, you know, one of the best examples throughout history of Groups of people caring about each other, right? Societies that need government because you have a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people needs rules, <laughs> needs structure. Otherwise, it's chaotic. So you build the rules and you build the structure. But if you build it for the for the powerful few or you build it to serve the people, it's just a different attitude. Mm. And that's the that's the key thing. So I would agree with you. Democracy is probably the kindest and gentlest. Has more interest in the people, but it's still all the democracies that I know of still work toward power and control. You know, that's not like that doesn't exist. That's still there. And those elements are still active, but there's also some caring for the people as well. You know, mm. so I think it's probably the best we've got now. And yes, we should try to continue those and not only not only create more of them, but try to take the ones we have and make them more democratic rather than uh, more autocratic or more into power and control. You know, make try to help them return to primarily function of government is to care for the people in a way that makes the 
people more independent and successful and happy and, and, uh, you know, fulfilled and every other way rather than trying to control and, and, uh, overrun them with power. Mm. So yes, I would, I would agree. That's probably the best shot because democracy just by its structure says that all people have a voice. That's the fundamental thing that makes a democracy a democracy is that the people have a voice in what the government does. And that voice should be a controlling voice, not just a, you know, a, a voice kind of crying out in the dark, but a, uh, a controlling voice. So I agree I with some, Yeah. I heard somewhere that uh, actually the quality of a system can be judged by how easily you can get uh, rid of somebody at the top who um, who doesn't perform well. And I think, uh, well, at least in a democrat uh, democratic system, you have uh, ways of doing that, you know, without violence. And, and so there are some at least possibilities for self-correction and, um, yeah, sure. and it guarantees right of, of freedom of speech and all that. And which so I think it's also maybe no coincidence that you came in this experience packet maybe to a you know democratic country where where these ideas can spread more easily when than when they're suppressed i i was i was wondering but you said now you had the impression that over the past generations uh you know we became more fearful i thought uh i, I remembered you saying that you know we've made a lot of progress both over the past centuries but also over the past mm -hmm. decades so so that, that i was just a bit surprised when you just said okay. that okay well let me explain that uh We have, we have uh, gotten less fearful in some ways and more fearful in others. Okay. Um, we've grown up, this, this growing up thing isn't all, you know, all aspects of yourself grow up at the same time. Some more, some less. Politically, we've become more insecure. Politically, we've come, we've become more fearful. We've, uh, we've become more fearful of a scary outside world. And that's just because our politicians and our media tend to dwell on everything negative, ignore everything positive, and because there is power or in manipulating people, even the marketeers, the people trying to sell us products, you know, they all try to frighten us into buying their product. You know, you buy this product because, you know, it will make your life better somehow. And the only reason you need to buy it is you're fearful that your life isn't good enough now. So they play on those fears. And we've just had so much of that in the last, what, four generations or so, because we've only had mass media for about four generations. You know, your great, great, great grandparents didn't have mass media like we have now. You know, they may have circulated local newspapers, but that's about it. So we're just in that stage where the mass Uh, communications is being used and sometimes abused. And, you know, we're, we have to deal with those kinds of things. Eventually we'll get over it. But, uh, so politically we are more insecure, uh, than we were, I don't know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And there's all kinds of signs that show that. But as a people in other ways, we're more grown up. We're a lot, uh, more open and a lot more caring, a lot more interested in, in what's going on in the rest of the world, not just, you know, in our own backyard. We've, we've expanded our, our vision, our horizons. There's a whole lot of things that have been very positive. So I'd say in the whole, this, uh, this political step backwards is just part of that 
you know, part of those ups and downs, you know, this curve. Well, let's start with this hand. It goes, uh, wrong one. All right. It goes here and it goes up, 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 and then gets faster. That's our growth curve. You know, starts out slow and then zips up. Uh, there's, it's not really a smooth curve like that. It's really a bumpy kind of curve like that. And politically, we're, we've taken a bump backwards, I suspect, but that happens. I think that's kind of routine. Little bits and pieces of our growth will seem to go forward in a leap and a jump or a step, and then they'll go backwards. Um, you know, we had a lot of growth through the, um, probably through the 60s and 70s and so on. We made huge gains uh, as far as uh, uh, getting rid of racism. We didn't get rid of all of it, obviously. There's still some, you know, there. But we went from a from a whole country that uh, had racist attitudes, just kind of part of the culture. Never even thought about it, you know. It wasn't necessarily intellectual. It just was part of the culture. To a country where race is not nearly uh, as big an issue as it used to be. I mean, there's, there's huge differences. It's day and night between now and, you know, and 50 or 60 years ago. And we've made a lot of progress there. And that's, that's good. Um, we've done some other things like that as far as growing. We, we are more concerned with other people than we used to be. You know, most nations were kind of insular and kind of, uh, they didn't want to get involved in other nations' business. They just wanted to do business at home and, they had that sort of thing, and we're growing into more of a global society, which is also a good thing. We're, we're finding ourselves to be uh, part of a human family, not just part of a local family. So those are all real good trends mm. and going in the right direction. Yeah. So, so it, it, I think in whole, all in all, we're making progress, but that doesn't mean there aren't pieces of it you know, going the other way for a time. But I don't think they'll go the other way long. I think they're just kind of local things that for maybe 20 years or 30 years, they'll cause a little problem. But, you know, we're looking on a big time scale here uh, on the, on the bigger scale. I think that stuff will all take care of itself. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, they're just momentary. And, you know, sometimes going backwards a little bit helps you go forward. You don't realize like in the U S you know, we thought we had pretty well gotten over the, uh, the racist thing. We felt pretty good about ourselves as being, you know, open-minded and caring of all the people and that sort of stuff until we just saw a whole bunch of it kind of, you know, come out of the woodwork here in the last, um, you know, six or seven years. And that kind of let us know, oh, we weren't quite as, you know, healthy in that regard as we thought. There was a, there was an undercurrent that was quiet, that wasn't speaking, wasn't uh, being heard, but it was there just the same. And that though we got rid of it on the surface very well, there was some of it still rotten, you know, in the infrastructure someplace. And that's good to know. Otherwise, that that rot just stays, you know, underground where you can't see it and, and continues until it builds to the point you can see it. Better to Better to see that it's there and now be able to do something about it. We need to take this deeper, you know, than we have before. So sometimes it's good. Some of those, some of that stuff that looks like it's going backwards, maybe really be triggering moves that go forward as well. I think it's just part of the process. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we tend to be reactive as people. We, we're not very forward thinking and proactive. We tend to just be reactive. And if there isn't a problem, then we, we kind of are okay with that. If the problem's out of sight, then it's out of mind. And it's good to be reminded of what's, what our, you know, underbelly looks like sometimes. Mm. And can I um, maybe uh, then link this to the second part of my question because you already mentioned the media. So in a democracy, I think quality media, they have an important function because they hold uh, those in power accountable. Um, they uncover bad governance, corruption, cronyism. They reveal and rebut falsehoods and lies and they report about the pollution of the environment, what's, uh, the, you know, the planet being mm-hmm. destroyed. And they give voters the possibility to make an informed choice at the next election. So, I mean, this is mm-hmm. really about quality media. Um, now, of course, as you said, and I fully agree with that, there's lots of, um, um, you know, online print and TV media that, you know, um, use, use fear and, and gossip and all that as a, as a tool to manipulate people. But I think there still is some quality journalism out there. So, Because you said, you know, yeah, you don't really watch the news anymore and, the, and read the newspaper so much because anything important you will learn anyway. <laughs> and I think for you, that's uh, probably the perfect approach for your mission here and all that. I was just concerned. Now, if everyone who is on a spiritual path and, you know, wants to grow up, if everyone just said, you know, oh, I don't care about any of this anymore, <laughs> uh, I thought that would not be good for, for example, you know, maintaining the democracy we have and making mm-hmm. informed choices and, so I was just wondering, uh, so my, and, and my approach would be we should try to figure out, you know, what's really quality journalism and try to support that to the extent, uh, you know, that they can keep doing their work. And, um, and when we, uh, and I mean, even sometimes quality newspapers, they have headlines that are obviously clickbait and, you know, they want to scare us a bit. So we maybe, maybe we should, um, use it in uh, our low entropy entropy approach to consuming news should be, you know, like um, dealing with difficult people. So, you know, if there's something that uh, makes us angry or fearful, we should notice it and then, you know, check our emotions and, and not react. Don't click on every mm-hmm. article, you know, that politician told that lie again or something. So if I think if we behave in that way, that could be a way to, to uh, keep supporting quality media and consume news that's important to make informed choices. So I was just wondering if you would agree with that type of approach. Yes, I agree completely with that type of approach. Um, you know, just as we said that good governments, no matter what name we call them, whether we call them socialist or capitalist or democratic or totalitarian, good governments are governments that care about the people. Well, good quality reporting and good press is press that cares about the people. They, they see their mission as informing the people of what's true. You know, so that's, if that's their mission, then they are very vital to a democracy because a democracy has to function on information. It can't function, you know, in a, in an environment where people don't know what the truth is. So yes, that's obviously true. Um, of course you have cases where, uh, You know, there is a lot of press that is not really caring about the truth. They care about how much money they make when they, uh, when they sell, uh, their papers or their magazines or whatever. So they find out that sensational things sell and 
not sensational things don't sell, so they end up with a trying very hard to make everything sensational. And so we have that going on as well. It's not so much about the people. And like in, in our country, we have, uh, we've done consolidation and mergers to the point that there's only, uh, you know, two or three big media giants that run everything and they can make the news as biased as they want because, you know, it's a free enterprise. The guy that runs the paper can, can slant the paper in any direction he wants, suppress some news, uh, make up news if they want. So it's, it's that sort of thing. It, the, the press cannot really be for the people. It can be for power and control, just like government. So it all boils down to the same thing. When people care about each other, you know, they're low entropy, then things work. If they don't, then they don't work very well. But I would agree. It's a, it's a high entropy proposition to be unaware of what's going on in your environment. It's a, it's a low entropy position to maintain a decent level of awareness of what's happening in your environment. If you don't have any idea what's going on in the world or in your environment, then you are, uh, uh, you know, you're just asking for trouble. You need to be aware of those things in your environment that are, uh, you know, that, that show trends, that show attitudes, that shows where we're going in the future so that you can be prepared for going there, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, yes, I think that you do need to keep your eyes open, your head above ground, and keep your, what is it, the finger on the pulse, see what's happening in the world. I don't think you should just, you know, cut yourself off from the news grid, but... Just in, at least for the, for what I'd call main media or mass media here, that's not really where I find, you know, where the truth is so much. You know, those are people trying to earn money and, uh, they kind of, uh, print whatever they think will earn them the most money. They're not really people so much dedicated to, getting truth to the people. Oh, yes, that's down there somewhere on their list of priorities, but it's not number one. It's maybe number four or five somewhere. So I'm with you. I gather my news from sites, mostly on the Internet, that I have found confidence in that basically, you know, are trustworthy for the most part, something that that is not that biased and, I plug in every once in a while, but I don't spend a lot of time in it. You know, it's not like I have to watch, you know, a half hour or even 10 minutes worth of news in a day. I'll just skip over the headlines and see what's important. And a lot of the headlines are really not important. They don't really show big trends. They don't really show what's happening and what's going on and the attitudes and where we are as far as evolving our quality. They don't show any of that. It's, it's just detail stuff that is neither here nor there. So. Yes, you got to keep your head above ground. You got to keep your your ears open and your eyes open and pay attention. Otherwise, you won't know what's coming until it's too late. So I would agree completely with uh, with what you're saying. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, something totally different. I think in one of your recent interviews with Laurie, you discussed the Fermi paradox, um, which basically says, you know, there are so many millions and billions of planets in the universe and, you know, uh, where life could have evolved just like on Earth, but where are all the aliens? Why haven't we been visited yeah. yet? We haven't seen any. 
So, um, and I think you suggested in that interview that one uh, reason for that could be that maybe indeed we're the only planet in the in our PMR where life did evolve because maybe the LCS chose to have it that way. And then mm -hmm. I was wondering if that's a, well, that's certainly a possibility. And if that's the case, would it be because I, then I came to the conclusions there could be two reasons. So either the rule set and the initial conditions uh, for PMR were such that it was quite likely that life would evolve on one of the planets. But then if this was to remain the only planet, then kind of the, the LCS would have artificially cut off that possibility for afterwards. Um, making sure this would be the only case because for some reason it really wanted to limit the, the playing field to this planet or the um, the rule set and the conditions initially were such that okay, all the galaxies and uh, suns and planets formed but not really live so basically you had the playing field but then in order for life to evolve the first cell maybe the, the LCS needed to initiate that again, you know, getting mm -hmm. involved. And then it decided to do so only once. Because So those were the two options I thought would be likely because having a rule set and initial conditions that, you know, made it just so likely uh, without any further interference that life would evolve on exactly one planet by chance, this is quite unlikely. So I was just wondering if, if that's uh, according to your view, how it could have happened so that actually it would require maybe then two big banks or digital banks, one for the game environment and another one for biological evolution. Well, I would agree with your analysis mostly. Uh, the idea, of course, with the Fermi paradox, for those that aren't used or aren't uh, familiar with it, is that we are in... Uh, we are not in the old part of the universe. The universe has evolved and grown and expanded over time. And that part of the universe that was stars and planets first is about a billion years older than our part of the universe. So if life just grew like it did here, there, or anywhere else, then the older part of the universe should be about a billion years ahead of us as far as opportunities to evolve. And a billion years is a long time in our physical system for, you know, for evolving things. That is, uh, that is huge. Our, our, uh, planet is, what is it? Something like five and a half billion years old. So there's others that are much older than that. Billion year, a billion years older. So if the idea was that if, if we're in a, in the, uh, and we're not really in the newest part of the universe either, there's other parts that we are billions of years ahead of them. But, um, the idea was that even at sub light speeds, if in the older part of the universe thing, you know, things migrated like they do, you know, we population fills up a space, we kind of mig migrate out to a different space. And when that fills up, we migrate out to a different space. And just at old sublight speed, um, over a billion years, they should have already passed through this area of our space a long, long time ago. And then the question from Fermi was, well, then where are they? Because they have to work with the same physical things that we do. They've got basically the same periodic chart, right? They've got the same stuff because that's what this physical universe is made of. They got the same electromagnetics and 
and other things. Now, they may have things we haven't thought of yet, other technologies, but Fermi and his physicist friends thought that it was unlikely that they could have moved through this area without us noticing, that it would be impossible. There would have to be signatures somewhere that uh, we are now advanced enough that we would pick up because we have very sensitive devices that look for tiniest little you know, electromagnetic fields in outer space and other places. And that, uh, that, uh, if our part of space was just fully, you know, so, so full that they, they had kind of overpopulated and now they've moved past us and gone on beyond to the newer parts of the universe, it would just be impossible for us to not know that. At least that was his, that was his assumption. And, and his, the Fermi paradox is, well, where are they? That's the paradox. Okay, from a scientific viewpoint, they should have passed through here and gone beyond us, uh, even at very slow population expansion and very slow uh, speeds in space. So the the uh, the point is, you're right. the um, The system creates this universe with initial conditions and a rule set. Then things should have been uh, uh, likely to happen elsewhere, like they did here as far as life taking root. But if the system started this game out with the idea that, uh, you know, seven and a half, nine, ten, fifteen billion, whatever, would be plenty, anything more than that, the overhead costs more than what you get in return for having another, you know, another being added to it, that you really have an optimal system for entropy reduction, you know, with just this one planet. And that more of them don't add that much, but do cost a lot of overhead to feed with uh, with the data streams. So, if it decided that that it really it's all it needed is about what this planet could do, well, there's a few ways it could have done that. And I think the idea that you said that it really had a hand in our evolutionary process to begin with. And I think that probably is the most likely answer that yes, okay, we got jellyfish and frogs and a few other things, but that really wasn't the kind of decision making level that it was looking for. It was looking for a level other than that and that <clears throat> it probably had to fiddle a little in the parameters or maybe create something, you know, kind of stick its hand in and stir the pot a little bit to end up with what it really wanted which was, you know, us and dolphins and, you know, the other critters that make a lot of choices, horses and dogs and cats and so on. That was a, that was, you know, I don't know what we'll call that, but more, uh, you know, the, the consciousnesses with, or the avatars with larger decision space. So I think it may have helped that process turn out that way would mm-hmm. be a good guess. Yes. Otherwise, it could have just, you know, computed those that were the most likely and most promising. See, it's a, it's a computer, right? It can limit itself. It doesn't have to compute every possibility. It can just compute enough possibilities that it's got something that's starting to take form. All right, we have something here that looks like it's, it's working. All right. And it can, if that is the case and it only needs say one or maybe two or three of those and that's enough, 
Well, when that happens, it may just stop computing the others. You say, all right, we don't need to compute any all the rest of that stuff. We'll just compute these because they only need to compute as much as those require, right? It's only computing the data that somebody needs. So it can just stop computing that other stuff and let it be. So it's not that that stuff, um, you know, it's not that any of our physical reality exists. It's just what's computed is what's there. So it may just have not done that. And there may have been something here in the middle, not the earliest part of the universe and not the youngest part, but somewhere here in the middle, something showed a lot of possibility. And it could be that it just only started to serve that area and the rest of it, it just didn't compute anymore. <clears throat> so it could always kind of narrow its scope as much as necessary because it's not like it has to compute everything. Like right now, it let's say that we are the only planet. It has to compute data streams for 7.5 billion people plus another couple of trillion critters of other sorts. And it has to, you know, keep track of all the rocks rolling downhill and, you know, the physical stuff going on and, you know, erosion and so on. All that's got to be part of its process, and it does that here. But it does not have to compute anything that we can't see, anything beyond what we see. And at night, most of us, all we see is a few stars in the sky. Now that we have so much light pollution and other kinds of pollution, it doesn't even have to compute many lights in the sky like it used to. Uh, and if we look at it with a telescope, it just computes it long enough for that to happen, and then it doesn't have to compute it anymore because nobody's looking at it anymore. So in that sense, it can just stop computing parts, and it makes the system less – there's less overhead that way. Only compute the parts you need. So it might have just been that too, that it may have just, just decided that this was enough, and it just stopped that computation. It's not like, oh, did it kill all those – Avatars, just avatars, just nothing. It's just information. Didn't kill anything. You see, it just stopped computing it. So that could be another possibility, but I think that it probably did, what can we say, uh, offer, you know, some new stuff. It did add some things here that maybe weren't just completely natural out of the, out of the rule set and the initial conditions. It may have tweaked it a bit to get what it wanted, and it may have tweaked it here and not elsewhere, in which case Fermi's assumption is, well, if we've grown up like this here, then it would be like this everywhere else. There's no reason to think that we're special. All the other parts of the universe would also grow up like it. It may not be the case. This place may have been tweaked because it had potential, and that was enough. <coughs> Didn't have to tweak all those other places. And if they weren't really showing a lot of potential, then you could just stop computing them. And if seven and a half billion seats is plenty, then no need for anything else. And the computing problem is a whole lot smaller that way. So now I'm not saying, and I always say that after I discuss the Fermi paradox, I'm not saying that that is the truth the way it is. I'm just saying that's a possibility. It may be that we are all alone. And that is a, probably the strongest solution to the Fermi paradox that is available. Well, I don't even know that it's available. It's just in my head and I've told a bunch of people, but I've never actually put it out there as a, as an official uh, answer to the Fermi paradox. I just have never bothered, but it is, there's lots of potential 
Um, if you look at it, if you Google it, you'll find there's probably 13 or 14, 15 uh, potential answers to the Fermi paradox, and all of them are judged weak, not very convincing. So I think this idea, once you understand virtual reality, is probably the most convincing answer to the Fermi paradox. Is why why are where are they? Well, they don't exist. That's why we don't see them. Because we don't the system doesn't need any more seats than that. Thank you. All right, thank you, Frank. We have another question from the MBT forum that was left over from the April. There are so many stories of people. This is concerning uh, near-death experience, NDE, and questioning free will as something virtual. There are so many stories of people <coughs> who had an NDE in which they told the entity they were talking to that they wanted to stay in this other reality, and the entity said, no, you've got to go back. And then the person is sent back to our reality against his or her will. The entity maybe the LCS hiding in one of its metaphors, it clearly has its own free will and in those cases opposes the free will of the dying person. This raises the question of the limits of our free will. What are they? Do we really have free will when ours can be crushed by the free will of the LCS? Okay. The answer to that is yes, of course we have it. And whether it can be crushed or not is not the issue. See, your free will can be crushed by being put in jail. You do something that uh, lands you in jail, and now suddenly your free will has just been crushed terribly because you can't go home for Christmas, and you can't invite your friends in for a party, and your free will has just been run all over, therefore you couldn't possibly have free will. Free will doesn't mean that you get to do anything you want. That is not free will. Free will is that you get to choose what you, what your choice is. If you have five choices, you get to choose one of those five choices. You have the free will to choose among the choices that you're aware of. Mostly, if we have five choices, there's probably another 20 choices that we don't even know we have. These are choices that we haven't thought of yet. They're, they're outside of our, of our box, so we don't think of them. And, um, we don't choose those either because they're outside the box. So it's just that we can make a choice of the choices that we've got. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that limit our choices. That's a, a big mistake. A lot of people say, oh, I have free will. That means I have no limitations on my choices. Nonsense. If you live with other people in a multiplayer game, you're going to have limitations on your choices. That's just the way it is. There's lots of limitations on your choices. And your beliefs are one of the biggest limitations on your choices. Your degree of entropy is another limitation on your choices. Lots of things limit your choices. Okay, so that's not the case. So yes, people have an avatar. They're playing that avatar. They're part of a virtual reality. That virtual reality needs to maintain consistency. You can't just have things, you know, uh, changing for no reasons. The person has gone there, has logged on to that to play it, and to play it to the end, if you will. And that's 
what it does. So when they're out in another reality frame and they say, hey, I don't want to go home. I like it here better. Well, they have responsibilities back home. They're involved in things. There's, you know, things they've got going there. They need to go back and tend to those responsibilities. Now, maybe if they were a hermit, lived out in a desert someplace, you know, under a rock, and nobody even knew they existed, you know, maybe the system would say, eh, okay, come on, you know, you don't have to go back there, and nobody would notice. But people would notice if other people just start disappearing, you know. Oh, they don't live here anymore. They're in some other reality now, you know. That isn't going to play well. And if avatars just, uh, you know, dropped over dead if they didn't disappear uh, for no particular reason. Now, that does happen sometimes. Sometimes people die and the, they do the autopsy and they can't find any reason. person just died for some reason and, you know, they don't know. Why? Well, maybe that's because they did just leave. You know, who knows? But in any case, most of the time, people are told, no, you have responsibilities in a job someplace else. And this reality isn't exactly what you think it is because mostly they have a first impression. They're there. They're talking to the big guy himself. They're all enthralled. It's all about love and peace. And they say, oh, this is, feels good. You know, back where I am, I got to work hard. You know, I got all this fear. I got this ego, whatever. And here, you know, this is just bliss. Well, the fact is they have all that fear and ego there too. It's just not being expressed there. There's no way to express it because in that mode, they're one with the, you know, one with all. And that's just an experience where you can't just be stuck in that experience forever. You're not going to grow up any. So the system puts you back where you belong, which is at your level in the grade that you're in, you know, to learn the lessons you have to learn. So you go back to third grade because you haven't got the fourth grade yet. You don't go back to second grade. You put back in your situation, the, the virtual reality remains consistent and you get to go on learning your stuff. There is no shortcut. You can't say, Oh, now I've, you know, I've, I've seen, I've gone to the light and the light. I just feel the love and this is wonderful. I'll just stay here. That's not growing up. You're having an experience. The experience is wonderful. The experience is life changing. But you can't just live that experience. You've got choices you have to make. And you're not going to make those choices any better anywhere else because those choices represent your level. Okay. You're having an experience that really is outside your level. You've gone beyond. You've gotten out of your normal reality. You're in some other reality now and you have this experience. Just an experience. So yes, you have to go back and actually live that life, make those choices and grow up. Well, it's, you know, we, we have experiences that are peak experiences. Maybe for you, it's doing three loop-de-loops on a, on a big uh, roller coaster. And that's just really a wow experience. And you, you know, you spend the whole day at the amusement park, just going back and doing that roller coaster ride again and again. And you scream and throw your hands up in the air, you know, and do the whole thing. And it's a lot of fun, but if, that became your life, it wouldn't be very productive, right? If you just spent, you know, 10 hours a day on that roller coaster, it would become not much. 
it would be a pretty shallow and meaningless life. You know, well, you get these experiences where you become one with all and you feel the love, you are the love, you feel apart and integrated with everything. That's a terrific experience, but it doesn't really make you grow up. You feel more grown up because when you get back, you feel like, oh yeah, I get it now. I'm, I'm, you know, part of the whole and you feel that integration, but you go back out into the world and you're just as small minded, you know, just as egotistical and just as full of fear as you were before. You've just had this experience at a higher level. Because you had that experience doesn't make you enlightened. It just means you've had a look at something that was way above your pay grade. Just to give you an idea of, of what the big picture is like. And now you got to go back in the salt mine, you know, and start swinging that pick again, trying to uh, evolve yourself up to that point where you can own it. That's just not given to you. You have to own it. You have to work for it. That's the only way you can change yourself. And if you're not changing yourself, you're not going anywhere. So that's why people get sent back. They need to get sent back. You know, it's like the child you know, maybe goes into the amusement park and he says, oh, this has been so much fun. I'm never going home. Well, you know, somebody will say, yeah, we know you had a good time now. You know, we'll take you home and you go home anyway. So that's what's that's what's going on. And yes, of course, you have free will. But free will doesn't mean you get to do anything you want whenever you want. It means you have choices. That's it. Even if the choice is only two or three things, live or die, sometimes that's your only choice. And uh, then you just have two choices, but you get to pick which one of those two. It's always a choice, though. All right. Thank you, Tom. Our next question comes from Jacqueline from the MBT Forum. I'm a relatively new user of this forum, so I'm hoping to get this to the right place. I've listened to hundreds of Tom's talks, and many of my questions have been answered within them. However, there's one question based on my personal experience I've never heard asked or answered, which doesn't mean it hasn't happened. So here's my question. Firstly, I'll frame it to give it context. Many years ago, I moved to an island off the UK mainland after having lived in and around London for most of my life. I still made several trips to London and greatly missed being there. On more than one occasion, when I arrived to meet up with friends, they swore they'd seen me already that day and had even been running after me, calling out to me. I had to show them my boarding pass to prove I wasn't there at that time and had arrived later. I'm not an average-looking person, and these were people who knew me well, and it happened on more than one occasion. I've had personal experience of other realities, and I'm also aware that I'm living lives in more than one reality at this time. My question, based on the above, is, is it possible to exist in more than one place simultaneously in this reality? Well, of course it is. That's because your existence is just a data stream. Okay. It's just information. This is a virtual reality. So you know how it is sometimes when you're just, you're just kind of in a mellow state and you start thinking about, uh, you know, Susie Q. Oh, I wonder what's going on with Susie Q. You know, I haven't seen her for 30 years. And within 10 minutes, your phone rings and it's Susie Q on the line. 
and you kind of got that message when she was thinking about calling you and thinking about you and you picked that up and you started thinking about her and then there the phone rings, you know, that happens all the time. Well, just think of the same scenario where instead of you getting the message that Suzy Q is thinking about you, so you start thinking about her, you actually see Suzy Q and she's walking down the street, but it's always going to be someplace where you can't actually get to her and hold her hand. You can't actually interact with her physically. You just see her there, and you may chase after something, but somehow she turns a corner and you lose her or whatever. Well, it's just data. It's data in the data stream. If the LCS would like to put your image of walking down the street on every sidewalk in every city on the planet all at the same day, it could do that. It's just data. So if the system wants to have you, uh, you know, walking in, uh, you know, 10,000 cities at a particular time, well, there you are. They just have to put 10,000 individuals have to get data with your data in them walking down the street in those places. So it's not like it's a magical thing with you get duplicated and sent someplace to, to go. It is information. I suspect that because you were coming there, these other people were aware of that because these are good friends of yours. They got a connection that you're there. So instead of getting the idea and start just thinking about you and then you show up in a couple of days, you know, they actually saw you there. Now, whether or not anybody else saw you there or not, hard to say. You see, your reality is is your interpretation of the data you get. And these people that saw you, their reality was interpretation of the data they got, and you were in that data. Why? Well, hard to say. Maybe the LCS was just trying to create one of those, how could that possibly happen, events to help waken people up. Wow, this world sure is stranger than I thought. I didn't know that could happen. You see, what's going on here? And then some of those people will start, Googling things and searching and become seekers, start growing up. So the system does that a lot. It just creates these kind of far out things that are impossible that people experience just to stir the pot a little bit and get them thinking in terms of bigger picture than just this material picture. Materialism can't, can't duplicate you and put you very, Put you in multiple places. Oh, here's my ticket. Look, I didn't, the plane hadn't landed yet. I couldn't have been there. Oh, but I saw you. Oh, isn't that weird? Yeah, that's really weird. Life is weird sometimes. It's got to be different than just this materialistic system. Gee, maybe it's a virtual reality. You know, it's that sort of thing. So I think the system does that to stir the pot and get people thinking of bigger, bigger things. And it does that lots. If you talk to people, and say, is anything really weird that you can't explain ever happened in your life? And you find out that probably 80% of the population has had something weird happen to them that they couldn't explain in their life. Because that's part of the way the system wakes us up when we're ready to be woke up. When it looks like it might do us some good. So, yes, you can be in hundreds of places at the same time if the system finds that convenient or even finds it fun system does have a good sense of humor. So that could be just what was going on. Now, about more mundane ways of doing that is that you can be in multiple realities at once, which you seem to have already known, 
And you can have bodies in multiple realities at once, which maybe you have too. And that's okay. To have more, to have your body in the same reality multiple times, that's also possible, but a little chancier because if that were to, if that were to become a fact, you see, then that would disrupt our sense of reality. That would make this, uh, not the consistent reality that we want. Now we want people to understand there's a bigger reality so they go learn to grow up, but we don't want this reality to become a goofy reality. We don't want it to become, what should I say, a reality where, you know, you can't depend on things. It needs to be a dependable reality. Otherwise we can't function here. If the, if the cause and effect doesn't seem to be consistent, then it's really hard to make choices. Can't make choices in a reality where the cause and effect is all jumbled up. Cause you never know what you might cause by doing something because who knows? One day it causes this, some other day it causes that. That's not a good learning lab. So in general, you don't have the same person walking around in the same reality, certainly not in the same city or on the same street or, you know, talking to each other or you see a person talking to themselves and they're duplicates, but they're not twins. That doesn't happen. Because it's a, it's it uh, would create a problem in our reality, but that doesn't mean that somebody can't, you know, uh, take on a body in China and walk around, you know, eating chocolate-covered grasshoppers or something, and then come back here. Doesn't mean that's impossible. It just means it's not likely. If it happens, it'll happen only way in the margins. And it only would happen because that person had the intention to do that and had enough focus and power in that attention to accomplish it. I don't, you know, you can, you can say that, well, gee, that'd be, that'd be pretty, you know, far out, but almost anything is possible in a virtual reality. Almost anything is possible. Now, when it happened like it did for you, it wasn't something you intended. It just happened. That's what makes me think it's the larger consciousness system doing this. It's, uh, and it was fun, right? You and your friends all had some fun with it and they got to, uh, feel that the reality was bigger than it seemed. So it was a good thing. So that's how that sort of thing works. It's easy. It's just data in a data stream. It's simple. You can see all kinds of things in that data stream and that is your reality. And it's not that they didn't see it. There isn't anything more real than information. They got the information. It's real. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for that question and that situation. Thank you, Tom, and thank you to all our participants for your great for your presence today and your great questions you've submitted, and to Oliver for running the server. Uh, please check out the link where you can donate to Oliver um, when we put this up on YouTube. And thanks, Justin, for editing all of this material every month. Thank you all, and we hope to see you again. Bye. Bye.